I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. We have a wonderful returning guest, someone who I enjoyed talking with so much last time that I invited her back, but she took a trip off to Ireland for a while, so I had to wait. <laughs> we all had to wait. So my guest this morning is Anne-Marie Keppel, and she is a hospice worker, and she is the author of this wonderful new book, Death Nesting. And she's actually doing a book tour now, I just noticed because she has a flyer, and she'll, she'll tell us about that. But those are the incidentals. Today is also Valentine's Day, and we're doing a special Valentine's Day tribute to death and to all of us, because we're all going to die. It's something that's unavoidable. It's just one of those things. And it's not like we've all been through it before, at least not in this life. It's something that seems so final and yet, what do we know? I mean, if we honestly reflect back on a lot of our, you know, traumatic and painful experiences, we often felt like it was kind of final, like we'd never escape from it. We would always feel this way. So there was a, a seeming finality to that as well. So this notion that death is this final thing, mm, I don't know. We don't really know. A lot of people think that it's just a, a doorway or a threshold to something else. And, you know, physics talks about how energy can't be created or destroyed. And spiritual teachers talk about an essence or the essence that we are 
never dies, it isn't born, but we have been born into physical bodies, and we have these wonderful physical bodies. As we get older, they don't feel as wonderful as they did when we were younger, and that leads to this notion of mortality and dying, and that the body doesn't last forever. In fact, it only lasts a fairly short time. And as we get older, our bodies start to fall apart, and, and the quality of life changes in that sort of way. And so death gradually becomes more of a reality as we get older. And some people experience more of it than others. Growing up, I didn't really experience much or any of it until fairly recently when my dog and kitty died one year after the other. And then my mother died a couple of years ago. And I remember having conversations with her over the phone about dying, about how to die. Like, she wanted to die, but she also couldn't let go. She didn't know how to let go. So she tried starving herself to death, but that didn't work. She tried that several times, and it didn't work. So one of the things I wanted to do today with Anne-Marie was to talk about how to approach death in that sort of way, how to how to approach death on our own terms and, and all of the, the complications around that because we also live in a, whether we're Jewish or Christian, we live in a, a Judeo-Christian culture, you could say. And there's a stigma around suicide or taking one's own life. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately and questioning that. You know, how absolute is that injunction? And how practical is it? And how fair is that? And so these are things that uh, I want to talk about this morning with my guest, <laughs> who's very patiently, silently... Giggling. Uh, giggling. And <laughs> <laughs> it's quite an introduction, Tonio. And also I want to invite listeners to call in and join us if they have questions or stories or concerns or comments, and you can call at 1-800-646-9437. So I'm getting older. I have a lot of friends who are getting older. My father's getting older, obviously. <laughs> and um, I sort of observed my mother from a distance, really suffering a lot as she was dying. And she really wanted to die. She reached a point where she had nothing left to live for, but she didn't know how to make that transition for herself. She didn't know how to spare herself of the suffering that she was experiencing, and she was experiencing a lot of suffering. And we were talking about that over the phone, and neither of us were shy about talking about it, which I think is a really good thing. We tend to be very shy or actually afraid of talking about it. Um, I'm curious about your experience, and then also to talk about how we can, you know, is, is it a legitimate thing? Is it a reasonable thing to take our own death into our own hands and, and make a choice to accept it or bring it into our lives on our own terms, or at least to some degree? Because we never know when we're going to die unless we do it for ourselves at some point. And, and there's different reasons for doing it. Some people do it. You know, the classic suicide thing is that your life is so miserable and you can't take it anymore. And some people think that's, you know, 
trying to escape and that that's an illegitimate thing to do. I don't know about that. And then toward the end of one's life or if we're suffering physically and the, our quality of life is very low and makes life not worth living, then um, it seems like a practical thing to move on. I mean, in the animal world, it's well known that animals do that. Like, if an animal realizes that it's about to die and there's no escape, an animal will often just drop dead on the spot and not even wait for its prey to, to do the final killing. So why not us? Why not me? Why not you? <laughs> yeah, there are some people who think that they would love to actually offer their body back to nature when they die. So some people talk about just, you know, going to find a polar bear <laughs> and <laughs> saying, have at me. <laughs> um, so, Tony, I, I love discussing all of this because it's territory that I am constantly investigating and reading about. And um, I have not formed any solid opinion one way or the other on every topic that you just mentioned, including the whole animal world. We can get into the animal world, but we should probably differentiate between a medically assisted death and suicide. So your mother, for instance, was she terminally ill? Was she very old? I have no idea. She was in her mid-80s or early 80s, and she was, you could say, terminally ill. I mean, she was old and frail, and she was falling down and breaking her hip and then having to navigate her apartment by herself. And and then she was getting admitted to nursing homes Mm -hmm. to heal from breaking things. And and she was also having to navigate the medical system. And she had a doctor who was not very sympathetic. She also had a lot of anxiety. So her suffering was compounded in, in numerous ways. Yeah, and she was tired. She was tired of, of living. There was nothing left for her, really. Mm-hmm. There was no quality of life for her mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Her partner had died a few years prior. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it was, it was painful to observe her suffering. And yet I knew there was really nothing I could do about it. I mean, I tried. I, I actually spoke to her doctor. <laughs> that, was, that didn't go well. I mean, I was very nice and polite, but he was fed up. She needed, she wanted drugs to help ease her anxiety. And out in California where she is, there's this big thing in the medical profession where doctors are, are not supposed to give those kind of drugs willy-nilly. And so this pendulum is swinging to the opposite extreme where they're very reluctant to give these drugs to people. And my mother's just suffering and she's near the end of her life. And he just was concerned about his reputation or his practice or whatever. And he just wouldn't do it. So at the time was medical assisted death or it used to be called physician assisted suicide. Was that legal there at the time or was that not even an option? I don't think it was an option. And if it was an option, you would have to find someone, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it was not an option. Yeah, I think California, um, I think it hasn't been legal for all that long and then they partially rolled it back recently also. So now it's not legal across the state. You have to go to court and you can get permission from the court to have 
the medication to end your life. Plus, you also have to be terminally ill. And if you don't have an absolute diagnosis of being terminally ill, then you don't qualify. And you could be more or less terminally ill. Like if you're really near the end of your life, but you don't have like terminal cancer, you're still terminal. Yeah, well, we're all terminal. We're all terminal. But <laughs> but I'm talking about when you get so close that yeah. the quality of your life is has yeah. deteriorated to the point where it's almost criminal to force someone to stay alive. Yeah. One of the problems that I have seen firsthand is people who are very old who have lost, I shouldn't say lost, but have lost all of their family members. All their family members have died, including their children, their spouse, their aunts, their uncles, their parents, obviously. And they are in good health, but they're on a lot of medication that is maintaining their health. In a couple of cases, I've wondered who is really able to advocate for them because they want to leave. They don't want to be here anymore. And I wonder, you know, if we continue to give them their meds because they're in care facilities and they don't want to be here anymore, is that kind of extending their life beyond what they would like to have happen? And at what point is it considered cruel or, you know, where is the line with all of this? It's so strange. And and we can talk a little bit about what's going on in other countries too. And so maybe you do not get the prescription Um, In Vermont, I understand that it's six months or less. You have to have a terminal diagnosis of six months or less, and you have to have a couple of physicians verify that this is, in fact, what you want to do. You are of sound mind, and you have to have an established relationship with at least one of the doctors in order for this to go through. So there are things set in place so that people are not just haphazardly taking this medication to die. But in what case should the elderly and and they're in good health, but because of their medication, can they choose to come off from their medication? Who's advocating for them if all their family members have died? They'll have somebody who's their medical power of attorney, but they don't necessarily have a relationship with them. It could be a distant relative. And the relative could be against it. Yes. Which is often the case, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I've worried about that in a couple of firsthand cases. Oh my gosh, this is really tricky. And, you know, the facility that they're in will continue to give them their meds because that's what you do. You give them their medication. And I want to say that I, first of all, I'm not a hospice worker. So I just wanted to clarify that, what you mentioned before. I was a hospice volunteer, but I do, in fact, work with people who are dying. And in this country... We have, there's only a handful of states that actually, where uh, medical assistance in death is legal. I I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but Vermont and Colorado, D.C., Washington, um, California somewhat. But this is still fairly new and extremely controversial. And there are a number of ways that this can become a very slippery slope. So we can go into that part too. Mm -hmm. I think that, People who are terminally ill or very old, I guess it has to be terminally ill, they're not suicidal. If they were healthy, they may want to be here for a lot longer and would, you know, may not choose to take the medication. And another perspective is that a lot of people who receive the prescription don't actually even fill the prescription or they never ingest it 
at all. Mm -hmm. And those statistics are not really clear from what I have looked up. So that brings a whole different perspective on things where is it the control that we are desiring? We want to know when our life is going to end and we want to be in control of when our life is going to end. So this to me says that we are very weak in our ability to surrender. So as long as we have the option, in this case, directly in our hand, that's enough to then feel like, you know, or it can be enough to then feel like I'm okay. And also we're empowered to actually make that choice for ourselves. We're not dependent on anyone else at yeah. that point. Yeah, and it's a point where you have little control of anything at all. You may not have control of your body. You may not have control of your finances. You may not have control of your surroundings. So then to have one thing that you're in control of probably feels really comforting at the end of your life. And, you know, I put out a general i'm i'm on like a a bunch of different death forums or whatever you'd like to call them on facebook and other social media platforms where i can get these different viewpoints from people who are working in this field all the time which i do not i want to also emphasize i'm not a member of or you know a part of the death with dignity act but i am a concerned citizen mm-hmm. <laughs> so i put a call out to just my general network on Facebook. So just my everyday friends who don't follow this on a regular basis. And I said, medically assisted suicide, medical assistance in death, death with dignity, all these different terms that you can use for physician assisted suicide or death. Yes or no, what do you think? Actually, I didn't phrase it as that yes or no. I said, what do you think? What are your thoughts about this? And all of them, except maybe two, there were a lot of comments and they all said, yes, 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 yes. Total support. And some people said, I totally support it. I'm 100% behind it. And there was one person who said, I'm not sure what I think of this yet. And I was like, thank you. (laughs) Because this is a hugely, really deep ethical question. And yes, when I think about it, I'm like, yes, of course you should have that right. Of course, you should have the right to end your own life. And there are other things that come into play. And we start to see this in other countries who have had this as a legal possibility or even a right for decades. I think the earliest is Switzerland. But the one article that I read was from Holland, and they're running into a lot of interesting situations that are similar to what Canada is seeing at this point, too. So we're babies on this forefront. So we've ironed out some things where you're able to ingest the medication yourself, and it's not an injection that the doctor has to give to you. But in other countries, they call it euthanization. They don't call it medical assisted in death. They don't call it physician assisted suicide. Straight up euthanization. So they're more honest and direct about it. Well, to me, I think yes. (laughs) But however, then I looked up the word euthanization and it's actually Greek and it means good death. 
Oh, so then even can, better. Yeah. <laughs> but then we could debate that for days. I mean, one of one of the first questions you get when you're studying to be a death doula is, what is a good death? Mm-hmm. Because you can unpack that for years. Right. <laughs> and also, a big part of a good death is how you get there. You know, and for many of us, it's a long journey to get there. And I think many people because of this this kind of puritanical and medical dictatorship culture in this country, people are trapped in an endless, a seemingly endless round of, of suffering until they qualify to die or actually die. And personally, I think that's outrageous and unfair. And I'm actually more interested in bypassing the whole medical system because I have actually haven't been to a doctor in, in over 30 years. I don't trust doctors. I know there are great doctors out there, but my experience and the experience of most people that I know and that I've heard of is that most doctors are still pretty much in the dark ages about all of these very basic humane issues. They don't think holistically, let alone practice holistically. So the way they approach illness and death and, and anything related to the medical field, to me, is anathema to everything that I believe or feel about life. So I don't want to have anything to do with them if I can help it. So when it comes to dying and being in control of my own death, at least to some degree, because, I mean, we don't really have control over anything, really, but we can take steps to, to take responsibility for aspects of our life to the best of our ability. And that's what I'm concerned about. That, Because sometimes, you know, circumstances, health conditions can hit us rather quickly. And we can find ourselves in a situation where we're suffering terribly and we don't have access to the kind of medical help that we really want or need. And especially if you're poor, you're subject to the available medical personnel and treatment that's, that's available. Mm-hmm. Even in a liberal state like Vermont, you may not get the care that you want. In fact, chances are you are not going to get the care that you really want if you are somebody who's thinking about these things and knows what you really want. Most people don't have a clue what they want. They just want to stay alive at all costs just because they're terrified of death. But those of us who've been thinking about death and really accept it and acknowledge that it's it's an essential part of life and know that it's coming are just interested in quality of life. Mm-hmm. So how, how can we bypass the medical system? I mean, are there, there are ways to access these drugs? Because as you said, to have the drug in hand available that you don't have to depend on anybody else to use it, then it becomes a personal choice. And you may not ever use it, but just having it available and knowing that you can make this choice for yourself is so powerful to me. Yes. And I think to many yeah. people. Yeah. You know, I I also rarely go to a doctor, but a lot of doctors like they didn't go to school to learn how to end people's lives. They went to school to learn how to save or prolong people's lives. And that's it. Mm -hmm. So some of them want nothing to do with this at all. Mm -hmm. But I can talk a little bit about what's, you know, in Holland, 
they changed the law so that it's you don't just have to be terminally ill. You can now have unbearable suffering with no potential for recovery. And does that include emotional, psychological suffering? It does. Wow. So now they've been doing this for 30 years. And so this has evolved. And so a medically assisted death, which they call euthanasia, is actually a right that everybody understands. And nearly everybody knows somebody who has died by euthanasia. How wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Hello. Hello. Welcome. This is Claire. I'm a doctor. I'm one of them. This is a fabulous conversation, and we should have it every week. (laughs) (laughs) It's important to talk about it. I work in a nursing home, and I've been a surgeon, so I know about snatching people back from the doors of death, and I know the satisfaction of getting people out the door when they look like they weren't going to make it. And I've done it in my own family. I've done it myself. But palliative care looks at your needs and wants and not your curability or your disease. You know, it looks at how comfortable you are, who do you want to talk to, what are your life goals. And this is actually run by doctors. And hospice care is very much, a good hospice care is very much informed by palliation. And it's not giving up on someone. It's sort of going full guns on what matters to that person. And it may be that, you know, they want to talk to a family member. Yesterday, we had three deaths in our nursing home. So I'm very familiar with how people die. I'm also familiar with how anxious the relatives are that they die or they don't die. And it's sort of nobody's in the middle about it. We had one where he almost jumped for joy that his wife, and it was just terrible for her. But she wasn't unhappy. He was unhappy about the way she was and thought she was suffering terribly. She wasn't suffering terribly. So... The rules of society are put in the hands of doctors, and I totally agree that they should probably not be in the hands of doctors. Doctors know about the messy business of dying, but they don't necessarily know about how to handle these incredibly ethical... um, It is ethical. It's, you know, if religion's not going to do the job, I don't know, maybe you could make up another one. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, somebody has to... Not necessarily, it's like... A group of your friends, a group of your neighborhood, a group of your people that you decide to, you know, read the same books or something. It has to be, a, I feel, a cultural agreement amongst the people. I know someone who is a medical practitioner who did the Vermont legal thing, and she just was tired of going through treatment after treatment after treatment that didn't work. And she basically had a party, signed her car off, signed all her paintings to somebody, took her pill, went to bed, they all drank champagne, and eight hours later she was gone. Her sister wrote the story about it, and it's a published book. So there's many ways to go, and I think it's the privileged at the moment that can actually use the system. As a doctor, many of us feel that we shouldn't be trying to keep people going, and the people who are desperate because their very sick relative dies you know, we get sent to the courts for that. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's, it's society that decides what you think about it. Mm-hmm. So more times that people talk about it like this in a very matter-of-fact, warm, positive way. And I actually know the sister of somebody. She took her brother to Switzerland, and they had a wonderful week in a hotel. He could barely move his arms anymore. 
and he just had to use his last bit of energy to swallow the drink. And then they waited a couple of hours and he was gone. They a new kind of him. vacation. They had a, a vacation. <laughs> they all had wonderful memories at the end. An exit and, vacation. Exactly. And the, the <laughs> thing about death is it's not all the suffering of the person. It's the suffering of everybody around them. Mm-hmm. The families, I mean... And the he, whole society who's trapped in this whole kind of Kafkaian trap, maze. I don't think anybody wants people they like and respect to die. Right. And we don't like hearing about other people who are trapped into dying in these ways mm. or not being able to die in the, or, or being forced to live and suffer miserably. Well, I had a conversation two days ago with the medical examiner who said, I've had an awful day and I asked her to tell me about it. So she said, I can't believe that these people thought it was a good idea to put their mother, you know, 90 plus, with a broken hip who had a dreadful surgery bled out during surgery, had no immune system, and then had every complication possible, but they just put her through ICU, and she died. You know, everybody was ravaged by it. Doctors, nurses, let alone the family. And the poor woman, who she probably decided that she was checking out long before she actually Mm -hmm. succumbed. You know, not only is that expense, I used to think that the only way I could talk to people about it is say, look how expensive it is to do futile work. But part of this, I really appreciate your input here. Part of this is also we're just kind of expected to do everything we can. But this is a 1950s thing. Oh, I oh, I completely agree. This is 1950s <laughs> when our grandparents checked into the hospital for a checkup. Barium enema, upper GI, suitcase, you know, what nightdress am I going to take, you know, what earrings shall I wear for the doctor? It was stupid <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> When I was an intern in Boston back in the 80s, actually it was 70s, a woman came with her suitcase to the the emergency room. She said, I got a urinary tract infection. We said, good, well, let's check it and we'll send you out with some pills. No, I've come to stay, she says. And she actually phoned the hospital later saying that that woman with an English accent, she was going to leave a bomb where they keep the telephones. So I was in trouble. Claire, I'm so glad that you called I have a question for you about the medical palliative care that you were talking Mm -hmm. about at the beginning. How available is that here in Vermont or in general? Well, St. Johnsbury and Littleton have palliative care department. Is this at a local hospital up there? Yes, there are two hospitals. Okay. And I know that Central Vermont Hospital has a very large palliative care department. Burlington has to have one, but I don't know firsthand. And what are they able to do? What, what constraints do they have? And None. Okay, so... The palliative care is just palliative. It's not about killing someone. Okay. There are several doctors in Vermont who will have the discussion. They might be a primary care physician who will have the discussion and will probably send their person to a doctor that they trust who also has the same attitude. Mm-hmm. And you need two doctors. Then you wait two weeks and then you get your pills, usually from your primary care, and then you can do anything you want. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you... But that's not part of palliative care. That's right. part of, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. dignity and dying and all that stuff. Yeah. This question is probably more for Anne-Marie, but maybe you have some awareness of this. I imagine since the medical profession has a lock on the drugs 
to take in order to die that there's yeah. there must be a black market <laughs> for this stuff. And I'm wondering if... Well, I know about it new. <laughs> okay. I'm just wondering if there's a way to do this on one's own terms in a way that, that isn't like, you know, doing a, a heroin deal or something or crack deal. Yeah. I have a, a distant relative who's a nurse and she's in her 80s and she says when she's ready she's going down to do a heroin deal and she's going to take an overdose. Mm-hmm. That's just a, you know, distant relative is not in this area at all. And I hope never would listen to this radio. And there's different ways. I mean, I've heard that helium is another way of doing it, but I don't yeah. know. I mean, are there people, people who've experienced <laughs> it and can tell you that this is a way that you can die without suffering? I think it what, you have... what you want to do. I mean, it depends. <laughs> I think his name was Waterman. Walked up to the top of the hill in the White Mountains. Thought he was just going on his own. He'd be found in the springtime. They sent up a party after him and found his stiff, cold body. But, you know, he could climb. He was still at that point. He was just desperate about his final cancer that he had. People do it many ways, but it's often inconvenient to everybody. Well, see, that's part of what I was going to say with the person in Holland who was 38 and they were not terminally ill, but it depends on how you define that because they wanted to die. And whether you call that a mental illness or not, I think it is supposed to be diagnosed that way. They were able to receive the medication to end their life and they had their family around, they ended their life and it was this... I don't like using the cliche, like, celebration of life, but I believe that's kind of what they did. It was a funeral, really. It was a funeral, for sure. And another person whose daughter had stepped in front of a train was so envious of that family that had been able to receive the medication because... They were able to end their life in a way that did not traumatize absolutely everybody around them. The the conductor of the train and the passengers on the train and then the headlines in the newspapers. And And the people had to clean it up. Absolutely, the cleanup. And, you know, this also made headline news, the fact that this young person who was mentally ill was able to receive the medication, but in a different way. It brought about a conversation rather than a complete catastrophe and really a trauma. Yeah. Well, it's the people that are left that have to deal with it. So those are the people that have to be comfortable around the whole business. Right. So society has to kind of introduce it, I think, I'm not an early adopter type of person. So, you know, I would have to be convinced that this was all kosher and people were happy about it. And there were obviously some misgivings about the reason for the the wanting to die. Mm -hmm. You know, could we have changed something? Mm -hmm. I know that Ira Biok, who wrote the book Dying Well, you might have read that. Have you read it? I, mean, I actually don't think I've read that book. Okay, and then but there's I'll put another it on book my list. <laughs> Best Care Possible is the palliative care one. Mm-hmm. The Dying Well was called the, um, I forget what it was, the Missoula Project. It was, I guess, wherever Missoula is. Missouri? Missoula, Montana? Montana, exactly. Could, and also, could you give the title of the other book you mentioned that you said was better? The Best Care Possible. It's by Ira Biok. Okay. He was in New Hampshire for a while. I was one of his patients. <laughs> yes. 
Talk about your experience with that, because I remember a number of years ago, you had leukemia, and I think you were expected not to make it through. Oh, absolutely, but I had had the opposite... (laughs) <laughs> the opposite thing. There was no way I was going to die. You know, with all the odds against me, I just knew I wasn't going to and was thinking of all sorts of non-medical things to do to stay alive and ended up, you know, going across to Europe to give a talk on poetry and music and art in uh, recovery from horrible diseases. But palliative care is taking care of... And the first thing I did was to see my spouse crying and decided I needed help taking care of family. So I sent out for the palliative care team and they came in numbers. They came with a pastor, a musician, an artist, a poet, massage therapy, doctors, nurses, social workers. How did you organize that? How did you arrange that? How did you- I just said I want to see them. And they were in the hospital. They had a palliative care Uh team in the hospital. So you have to have, well, knowledge maybe. I don't think everybody invited them in. But, you know, I said, well, if I have to pay you on my own, I want you. And they said, no, no, you qualify. (laughs) I said, but I need help, you know. The biggest trouble for me is watching my relatives. Uh And not my own. I mean, I had suffering, but it wasn't dreadful. So this is such a big thing that... The palliative care. And, and also having conversations with our own families because mm-hmm. death is inevitable mm-hmm. and if we wait until death is staring us right in the face, that's a precarious situation to be trying to navigate right. well, we relationships. These, we have these uh, forms, which is called the Physician's Order, it's P-O-L-S-T, Physician's Order... Post. For, end of life basically and it's just going through a fairly clinical list so if your heart would stop what would you do you know do you want us to resuscitate you well this is what resuscitation looks like so then you get into the conversation about well do you really want a feeding tube do you really want to have antibiotics do you really want to have all this you know what is your belief system what do you want out of life and these are the conversations that we have when every person gets admitted, even if they just had their knee done. Isn't that just an advanced directive, but then it's, the physician's order is actually yeah. the post? Yes. It, right. is, it is basically the advanced directive. But that gets you into the conversation about, you know, do you really want me to jump on your chest as a doctor? If it looks futile to me, do you want to, you know, do you want us just to call the family and have you go out comfortably? Right. Mm-hmm. Those things, I mean, that's incredibly important. And that form, there's like a short version and a yeah. long version. They're available online. Yeah. And you can also just write your own at home. Yep. Yeah. I think it's actually a legal form now in Vermont. I'm not sure. It's called a Colst in Vermont. Oh, the Colst, that's what it is. Okay. Just, yes, 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 but yes, in, yes. in New Hampshire, it's a Colst with a uh-huh. P. Yep. And it's actually not legal, but we have made a project in our nursing home of having one on every single chart. So that guides the extent of extra work that we would have to put in. Because if people really want to be resuscitated, you know, we don't even get time to comfort them. We just put them in an ambulance and send them to the hospital. 
Right. I just want to clarify one thing, and please tell me if you understand this differently. But an advanced directive, anybody can download online. They can fill it out at home. They can, it can be signed by two witnesses yeah. and then that can be given to their spouse. It can be given to their doctor. They could right. register right. it online. So right. that's not a physician's order, correct? No, no and, correct. Right. And I think that's just like VermontHealth.gov or something. You can look up advanced directive. And even if you use that form just to start to trigger ideas. So you say, oh, I haven't thought about that before. It's actually a great activity for a family. Oh, I know. And in fact, you know, we have a couple in our home and it's not been done yet. Yeah. How binding are these documents? I mean, are doctors bound to honor them? If a person loses capacity to make decisions for themselves, they have written there a DPOA designated power of attorney. So the DPOA basically can do what they want, but they, you know, we look askance at them. So this is where the cultural part comes in. And we look askance at them if they're saying to us, you know, do everything. You say, well, actually, this says don't do everything. This says... You mean do everything to save them. To resuscitate them. Which reminds me, there was a doctor supposedly who had tattooed on his chest, do not resuscitate because he didn't (laughs) trust... That's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do have to trust your medical agent, whoever you've... Um, well, uh, very often the EMTs, if they don't find right. that form... They will automatically resuscitate, yes. no matter they will, what. And they do it, and they've done it against our total advice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I have to go, and I'm so glad that you're doing this. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for calling in. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was wonderful, getting her perspective. That's great. Plus, she has a nice accent. So oh, she- <laughs> that's always nice to listen to. <laughs> and it's, it's also wonderful to hear from a doctor who's really been through this and is pretty gosh darn enlightened about all this stuff. I mean, I wish there were more doctors like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think she's seeing, she said she works at a nursing home, right? Mm-hmm. So she's seeing this firsthand. Yep. Doctors who are working in hospitals to save people's lives will have a completely different perspective. So she's seeing the people dying. She's right. seeing what the people are going through and the mm-hmm. extremes. And wouldn't it be wonderful if they taught a comprehensive course on palliative care and, and palliative issues in medical school? Not just, like, doctors will often get a few hours of various subjects, but to get a comprehensive training in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe a lot of the death doula trainings have some doctors and nurses that want to understand more how to support people at the end of life because their training did not include that maybe at all, or maybe it was like one little chapter, like a little, oh, and also <laughs> this and is how to... I've heard from a number of doctors that doctors experience a lot of despair in the way they lose patients and that there's this loss of sense of meaning or just an abject sense of no meaning in all of this when there's no connection to dignity and the humanity of the situation where doctors are basically ethically and almost and legally bound to save people's lives, keep them alive as opposed to taking care of them in in this more broad, holistic way that when they see that a person is suffering and that prolonging their life is not going to save them, it's only going to prolong their suffering. I think that's what's missing in the training of doctors these days. Well, as our population continues to grow, they might be taking a different look 
you know, everybody might get a different perspective on when somebody wants to end their life, it may become a little bit more acceptable at some point because, you know, with environmental refugees and political and war, like everybody just trying to find a safe place to live (laughs) and have access to clean water. You know, at some point, it's not crazy to think that certain lands will become overcrowded. And then when people want to die, everybody might say, glad to know you. Good luck. You know, in Japan, suicide is viewed much differently than it is here. And it's almost like, you know, you're kind of raised to feel like you don't want to be a burden on your society. And so when somebody ends their life, it's sad, but it's also kind of respected. And it's also (laughs) just stay alive and maintain life to all extremes possible. Right. And even metaphorically, maintain our facade, our image, the life of our image, of our public image. Which is why I actually have, personally, a little bit of an issue with the name Death with Dignity. To me, it makes me think, wait a minute, is not ingesting the medication undignified? Like, if you want to maintain your dignity and die respectfully and not let people watch you fall apart, is that undignified? (laughs) I think we need to resurrect the term euthanasia because traditionally euthanasia is used to talk about putting down animals. Mm -hmm. And God help us humans to equate ourselves with animals and to think of ourselves in those same terms. But we're talking about life. Life and death. And I love that you reminded us that euthanasia means good death, literally, Mm -hmm. from the Greek. And if we were to re-educate people what that means, Mm -hmm. euthanasia, as good death equals good life, right? I mean, people talk about how if you're afraid of death, if, if you can't accept your own death, if you're not willing to face your own death, you're not able to live, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like talking about animals in this discussion because one of the things that agitates me is that, okay, so a a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now, there was an article that came out, I don't remember where I read it, and it said, we're so lucky we found this horse. He had run off into the cold winter And I don't know if he had done it before. I don't know the age of the horse. But because of a drone, they were able to locate the horse and bring it back to the owners. And everybody was so happy. And one of my questions is, well, wait a minute. How old was the horse? Was it ready to die? Had it been looking for an escape for months, finally got its one chance, busted out, and then here comes a drone for people to claim the horse again, bring it back, and... Then what? I don't know this particular situation, but my daughter found a dog who was curled up on the side of the road and she brought it home just a couple of weeks ago. And we were trying to find the owners and making phone calls and posting on Facebook and calling different animal leagues and trying to track down the owners. And my daughter ended up driving from house to house and found the owner of the dog. Well, it turned out the dog was very, very old. It could hardly walk. And I'm pretty sure the dog was curled up on the side of the road in the middle of winter because it wanted to die. So we're not allowing our animals to just go out into the cold and die like feels very natural to do. Mm -hmm. We bring them back home. And then what? Will we euthanize them so that 
we are feeling comforted by the way they died rather than letting them have their natural instincts guide them. So this is interesting when you're thinking about humans. We try to maintain our life and keep the human body alive for so long with medications and surgeries and artificial organs. And we stay alive, 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 alive. And then what? And then when we get tired of that, then we want to end it on our own terms also. We want to, instead of then just letting the body die naturally, then we want a pill to end that medically as well. So we have medically extended our time and then we want to medically end our time. And it is interesting that we just like this control as humans and we want to do it with our animals and we want to do it for ourselves and we want to do it for each other. And it's just so distant from allowing nature to take place. It's so nuanced. Like there's so many different ways to look at all of these things. And, you know, euthanization for animals, the injection has only really become popularized in, I think, the 1990s. I think they were using like gas before. But the widespread understanding that, oh, your dog is suffering. You should end its life now. Why can't it just die? Why can't... And I'm I'm saying this only because not if it's like a messy accident or it's an extreme pain, but there's some times when the animal is just simply dying. And I talk about this because we don't like to watch other things suffer as we perceive their suffering. So we want to help end it, but we don't really know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And when we watch an animal give birth or a human give birth, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of panting, sweating, yelling, yelping, whatever it happens to be, the animal world and the human world. We don't mind watching births, even though we are uncomfortable because we equate it with hope and life. But then on the other side, whether it's an animal or a human, when we're watching it die, we want to help end it. We want to end the suffering and we don't want to watch. A lot of people don't want to watch. Some animals owner won't even be in the room sometimes when they have it Mm. euthanized. And that's a very strange one to me. So it's really interesting when we want to control human life, we want to control animal life. And at what point do we just kind of surrender? And is there a place for that anymore? I love the way you think about that. And I'm talking with Anne-Marie Keppel, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Anne-Marie is a death doula. You've probably heard of doulas, you know, who assist mothers in giving birth and taking care of their newborn child and with the beginning of life process. But you're a death doula, and that's so wonderful. My ex-girlfriend came by after our last interview And I was telling her about the interview, and she said, I want to be a death doula. (laughs) So I gave her one of the copies of the book that you gave me. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So, yeah, you work at the other end. And in our culture, we're afraid of death. How do you help people with that? I mean, what is your work about as a death doula? And also, I want to mention that you have a new book out called Death Nesting. 
First of all, I encourage everybody to become a death doula. <laughs> and you do not need a certificate to do it. You can study yourself. You can learn from people who have been doing this for decades. You can volunteer to become a trained hospice volunteer, which is a fantastic way to start. That is the slower version. It's much less glamorous than the death doula training that is becoming kind of a trend right now. So I usually suggest that you become a hospice volunteer first, do the slow work of going into people's homes, get some experience, decide if you like it, and then do death doula training. So my book is called Death Nesting, Ancient and Modern Death Doula Techniques, Mindfulness Practices, and Herbal Care. And my friend Sandra Laurie, or Sandra Lazorczyk, she was the herbal contributor. Do you have a website? Yeah, so that's stardustmeadow.com. Say that again? Stardustmeadow.com. And you could also go to deathnestingbook.com, and that will bring you to the same place. And there's all the information there. A few weeks ago or a month ago, I was not feeling very well physically and thinking about my own death. You know, maybe I'm getting to that time or close to it. And so I was really thinking about this issue and how to take control of that, how I could approach my own death on my own terms, you know, without doctors and how, you know, to have the pills or whatever it is I would use to make my exit on my own terms. What do you know about that realm and those possibilities, those options, those methods? <laughs> it's Tony, what are you asking me? <laughs> I, I'm picking your brain. <laughs> there was there was um one doctor who had a patient that was requesting that he gave him the end of life medicine to end his life and the doctor said, are you kidding me? It's 15 below zero right now. Grab a bottle of whiskey and go sit in your garden and we'll find you in the morning. <laughs> I've thought about that many times. But there's also you know, like there's the Buddhist notion of doing it consciously. Yes. Well, then you run into interesting territory, right? So if you will yourself to death, well, that's one thing. But there... And I'm not even... Th- talking about willing oneself self to death, but, but finding a way to be conscious, clear-headed as you're dying. Like, if there are, like, I don't know. I don't know any of the means other than, you know, the traditional means of, of like, a gun or sticking your head in an oven or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, doing these bizarre jumping off a building or, you know, the messy ways that, oh, that just, yeah, that just traumatize everybody ways. around oh, you. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking in terms of like, like when I heard about helium, where I, my understanding is that when you breathe oxygen, you exhale or that creates carbon dioxide and that's what causes the body's discomfort and the reflex to breathe again but that if supposedly if you if you're breathing something like um helium that you don't generate um carbon dioxide and then you don't suffer but i don't know if that's true because i'm not aware of anybody who's come back from that to say and no then there's, idea. there's like the thing about drowning like 
I don't know if that's a painful way to go or not. Because if you breathe in water, there's a similar thing. Maybe there's no carbon dioxide um, response. I don't know. I think for me, what's scary is suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how I die. I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm afraid of how I'm going to die. I'm afraid of suffering. Well, isn't that interesting? Because we don't allow ourselves to suffer, do we? We try to do everything we, don't we can like to control to our environment. Yeah, mm-hmm. we don't like to suffer. We, it's that push-pull thing. Mm-hmm. We, we try to bring pleasure and, and joy to us, and we try to push away things that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, I have... Um, <laughs> I've often thought I would love a magic pill <laughs> if, you know, comes the apocalypse and <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to be here anymore. Like you see whatever horrible being coming at you and you're like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> the zombie I'd, apocalypse. I'd rather avoid that. <laughs> so I'd like to check out, please. Um, I, I don't know of um, any physical ways that I could even suggest <laughs> I don't know but I I have practiced POA which is a form of ejecting your consciousness out through the top of your head um, and um, that is one way to in practice intentionally ejecting your consciousness so at the time of death you're supposed to be able to do that and how successful have you, you been at doing that well um, I'm still here speaking with you. <laughs> but wait, but there are people who, who, who have developed the ability to actually leave their body, but and come back. I mean, just leaving your body doesn't mean that you die. Yeah, and they actually warn you. So when you're having these instructions from um, Tibetan Buddhist teachers, um, they will say, you know, at, at least my instructor said the Rinpoche said. As you know, nobody has ever died from practicing this, so you're okay. None of my students thus far have actually died from this, but um, you it does make you kind of jumpy in your own body. So you're supposed to try and take care of yourself, move gently throughout your surroundings when you're practicing this, because you know, if somebody startles you or something, you could you know, pop, there goes your consciousness, and just kind of like you could pass out or um you know, get really dizzy. And so you are instructed to just be very mindful while you're Do you want to describe practice. the practice? Um, I, I don't, I am not, I shouldn't. Okay. Yeah, because... Because you're not, author- you, you, I'm, I'm, not, you're not authorized to, to pass on such instructions? I'm not authorized. I'm a little tiny baby. I'm a baby in so many ways, Tonio. I don't feel like I should be instructing anybody on anything. <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel the same way. I think we're all babies and I'm a baby forty two year old. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'm a baby sixty two year old. Very nice. <laughs> mm. But there are there are other ways. There are, are possible ways of, of doing this. And there are people who I mean, I like the idea of of going with a clear head. You know, I don't like the idea of taking a drug like heroin or something that's going to just 
disconnect me from my body. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in a lot of physical pain, then maybe I will be aching, literally aching yes. to disconnect from my body. Right. I think a lot of things that you ingest do end up causing a lot of pain because you're ingesting a poison of some sort. And that's a potentially less messier way. But um, yeah, until then, I don't know. Go. There'll be somebody out in the forest that knows herbs so well. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that I could think of. I, I just usually think of there's plenty of like poisonous mushrooms out there. But those are really uncomfortable. Those oh, yeah. make you and really I think you purge sick. actually. I think yeah, potentially unless you're from taking the death, unless you're taking the white amanita, you're not going to die. You're just going to suffer a lot, and then you might die after a long bout of suffering. There you go. That's just probably not <laughs> ideal. No. <laughs> not at all. Tonya, I do I do have a present for you. I have a Valentine's Day present for you. Wow. So this is a little, um, because it's Valentine's Day and we're talking about death, this is a little stone heart and it's a little beaten up. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's and so beautiful. But, I, yeah. I look for for heart images in nature. Oh, so, that's great. And when I find them, like like pieces of wood and is, is the most common thing, sometimes stones, but yeah, this is, mm-hmm. thank you so You're much. You're welcome. And even though it's a little beaten up, you could still rub it and it could bring some comfort, very much like our own hearts, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so honored. Hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so where should we go from here? I'm mm-hmm. I'm like been thrown for a loop. <laughs> well, um what have we not covered that that would be really wonderful to cover? I don't know. You know, we could if you wanted to talk more about um Either physician-assisted suicide or okay. or um, other suicide. We could talk about yes. ways for, um, you know, really appreciating and living your life right now. We could talk about the difference between um, thinking about your death and then when your death is actually, like, you're confronted with it and how that starts to change. Yeah, and and also how we how we can prepare the people around us for accepting the way that we want to do this process Mm -hmm. so that we're not engaged in a battle, like a a life and death struggle right at the doorstep of dying. Mm -hmm. Take all the fun out of dying. Because dying (laughs) could be a... Because dying could be a really beautiful, wonderful experience depending on how we approach it, just as birth, birthing is viewed to be such a wonderful, beautiful, magical process. Was it Peter Pan who said to die would be an awfully big adventure? Mm. Is that a quote from Peter Pan? I don't remember where that's from, but, but that... That does sound vaguely familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. we don't have to look at it as something absolutely horrific. The problem is that people will miss us. 
you know. So for the individual who is heading out, there are plenty of people that I've talked to that they're just really looking forward to either meeting God or finding their um, deceased loved ones or, like I was saying before... Or the mystery of of the next step. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. to me, what seems really important or a wonderful gift would be to talk to our loved ones about this side of death and dying, the the wondrous, magical side of it, and prepare them so that they can actually view your dying or our dying or somebody else's dying as something wonderful, like birth, like like a, a new birth. Yeah, I think I just read... Um, I always think everything was a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, <laughs> uh, honestly. <laughs> This may have been last year. It could have been that's 10 the years immediacy ago. of life because our memories are, are we experience them in the present. Yes. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I read an <laughs> article about this couple. I think they were a, a lesbian couple, even though that has nothing to do with it. But these women wanted to die together. And um, they had written out the reasons for ending their life they said we don't want to start a trend we're not suggesting anybody else do this we're of sound mind we love each other and we want to go out together and um i thought that was lovely i do too so i think maybe they could do it on valentine's day they could do it. <laughs> i think maybe it's like preparation like mm-hmm. um emotionally uh, well you know and making it known. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because you can also, I believe you can, you can write out your own will in the state of Vermont and you can have two people witness it. But I believe that you can write out your own will and have a notary stamp it. And then nobody actually sees your will at all. So... Sometimes, as opposed to getting witnesses, and as opposed to having witnesses, so mm-hmm. you just do this yourself. So, um, you know, in some ways, if if you like made all of these preparations to begin with, and it was very thought out, and it was, you know, you've looked at it from all angles. Well, then people just kind of need to work with their own feelings surrounding that. Exactly. Right. Right, and that's where I was going when I was talking about talking with your loved ones to get them on board with you so that they're not fighting against you mm-hmm. and also so that they won't experience undue suffering mm-hmm. in relation to to our own wishes mm-hmm. like if we're feeling really open and wonderful and m- magical about this new doorway that's opening up for us and we have loved ones, people who we dearly love, clutching at us, it just uh, complicates things unnecessarily. Or maybe maybe it isn't. Maybe it's something, I don't know. It's, you know, life is full of these kind of complications. But, um, yeah, to have these kind of conversations. Yeah. And at what point are you considered able to make these decisions yourself where it's considered sane. Do you know what I mean? So that's interesting. When, um, like the 
the newer law that says if you are um, have unbearable suffering, you're able to get this prescription from the doctor, and I'm referring to Holland. Um, at what age does that become acceptable? Would it be, you know, an 18-year-old? Would it be, you know, how do you decide then? So there are younger people who want to end their life, but would you consider that acceptable that's because complicated. they're younger? Or that's, that's, is it only yeah. acceptable when you're older? Yeah. And so where do you draw that line? And um, so there are a lot of strange things that can start bubbling up as people then are given the right to end their life, quote unquote, right to end their life. Um, and I, I think we have yet to find somebody who um, ingests the medicine who it was not prescribed for. Um, so we, I, I'm confused by, by mm-hmm. so home deaths, right now. So you're allowed to, if you receive the um, medication to end your life from your physician, you're allowed to ingest it at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, we have yet in the United States for somebody to accidentally or or purposely ingest that, but it was for somebody that was not intent, it was not intended oh, for. I Do see. you see what I mean? Because yes. they have family around them. Yeah. So in other countries, they've avoided that by having the physician inject them. Okay. And um, yeah, so there have been instances, though, another interesting thing that comes into play is somebody fills out their advanced directive and they say, if I get to this stage, X, Y, and Z, I want to have the doctor end my life to have this terminal injection. But when that point arrives that the person has then dec- declined to that um, point, they can no longer confirm that they, you know, in certain circumstances, they can no longer confirm that they actually want their life ended. And in Canada and also Holland, there have been instances, and maybe some other countries too, um, where they have actually injected the person against their will. So in their current state of mind, they were denying it. But in their advanced directive, they said, if I get to that point where I'm acting like X, Y, and Z, and I don't recognize my relatives, and da, 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 um, I want this done. But um, they have actually like held the person down and injected them, and then they died. And that was with the family's consent as well. It's not just the doctor that was doing this. But um, So there are a lot of things that come into play with making decisions to end your life and under what circumstances and with whom and in what company and what age. And it's just an enormous, that's why I didn't actually talk about it in my book at all, because I'm not done thinking about it. It's complicated. Yeah. It's so complicated because it's so easy to err on the side of, well, let's err on the side of keeping people alive or others might, probably fewer people might say, let's err on the other side because of overpopulation. But it's it's a big unknown. It's it's like a, a huge gray area. And how wonderful if we could just allow nature to take its own course 
not interfere. But um, life is not so simple. We humans who have this funny thing called, quote unquote, free will, it sure complicates things, doesn't it? It sure does. It's <laughs> <laughs> mm. a lot of responsibility that comes with the idea of free will, whether it's an illusion or not. It feels like it, like it's very real. I mean, the illusion is very real, like like the rest of the illusion that we <laughs> that we get to experience. <clears throat> and we're we're just about at the end of the show. Anne Marie Keppel, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. I mean, this was as good as I could have hoped for. Thank you, Tonio. It's an absolute pleasure speaking with you. It's it's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. This topic, this thoughtful um, approach to this unthought about topic. Mm-hmm. And as Claire said, we should be doing this every week. <laughs> yes, we should keep on talking about it. This is These are the conversations that might make life precious and real and genuine and, and form real relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, enjoy your lives out there. <laughs> and um, that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.